This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi, and a very good afternoon to you. It is Wednesday afternoon. It is just about to be five past two on this uh, beautiful, beautiful Wednesday afternoon here in Joburg. And, of course, a very, very significant day today. I'm sure that it uh, struck everybody that um, just over the last uh, day or so um, that there is something very significant about an eclipse. And while it wasn't um, um, that visible in these parts of the world, it was certainly in North America and became a big event, the eclipse. I'm sure that it's dawned on you, and that's probably quite a good word to use in this context, that an eclipse can only take place either in the middle of a month, and then you would have a lunar eclipse and the other alternative is the beginning of the month, and then you would have a solar eclipse. And, of course, we're talking about the Jewish months because everything is dicta- dictated by the moon. And um, it can only be um, at this time of the month, of the at the time of Rosh Chodesh. So a solar eclipse would always only be on or just in very, very close proximity to Rosh Chodesh. And, of course, indeed, this was true here as well because... Yesterday and today is Rosh Chodesh, Rosh Chodesh of this wonderful month of Elul. It is Elul that is upon us, and today the first day of Elul, the beginning of this month, which is going to lead us up, is going to take us all the way through to Rosh Hashanah. And, um, of course, that in itself makes us a little nervous uh, because it is very close. And, of course, most people calculate and think about Rosh Hashanah in the secular calendar as being kind of uh, the beginning of the end of the secular year. Uh, People are already saying, wow, it's nearly Rosh Hashanah 2017 is kind of done and dusted. Well, there's still a way to go. And, of course, there's a lot of work to be done, a lot of things that we have to do and get through. Yes, because we're going to be so busy, maybe the time is going to fly. But um, it all really begins today. And if we're to reflect back, if we're to think back um, over the years and um, go back to the time that our forefathers were in the desert in that awesome time as we escaped Egypt and uh, quit the bondage and the diaspora that we were in then and we're on our way to Gula, we were on our way to the redemption on our way to Israel, we had to unfortunately spend 40 years in the desert. But in that very, very first year, there was um, the entire uh, incidence and uh, complete story, as we know well, of the giving of the Torah. The Torah was given to us on Mount Sinai just seven weeks after we quit Egypt. That was Shabbat. And then 40 days later, We know that Moshe Rabbeinu had been away. He returned, and he came back on the 17th of Tammuz. And as he returned on the 17th of Tammuz, of course, on that um, awesome and difficult day, the Jewish people, or many of them, were worshipping a golden calf. Moshe Rabbeinu Moses had to break the tablets, didn't want to implicate his people in being bound by too many of the laws and realized that it was too early for us to actually have that Torah, which now was going to obligate us in a way like we were never obligated before. And of course, the tablets were broken. Another 40 days was spent in a repentance in Tshuva. And then we came to the awesome day of Rosh Chodesh Elul. 
today. If we were to go back to the year 2448, what is that? Um, 3,329 or 30 years ago. Um, it's some time back. What was happening in the Jewish camp today? Well, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, was well aware of the fact that the Jewish people had messed up a little bit because they had miscalculated or perhaps taken too literally the words that he had said before his first departure up the mountain. Listening and hanging on to every word that Moshe Rabbeinu told them, when he told them that he would be back in 40 days, they started their clocks at that moment, instead of thinking about the fact that he was only leaving the next morning. And so... In that last day, when they thought that Moshe Rabbeinu, that Moses was not coming back, it didn't take long for the rabble to be roused, for the people to start thinking about alternatives to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Moses at first, and then eventually the next day, unfortunately, worshipping what they had created, that golden calf. Moshe Rabbeinu did not want to repeat no repeat performance this time. I need you to sound the alarm and tell everybody that today I am departing. And in fact, one of the first um, incidents of the sounding of the shofar happened right there and then. It was at that moment that the shofar was sounded. Moshe left early in the morning. And traditionally, therefore, from today, we start sounding the shofar to remember every, to remind everybody of the fact that we should not slip, we should not falter, we should not fail. But that in 40 days' time, which is the anniversary of Moshe's return with the Torah that lasted, the tablets of stone that lasted and will last forever, that that was Yom Kippur. And so 40 days from today is Yom Kippur. And it is these 40 days that we are really focusing on and thinking about, starting from now with the month of Elul. Back with you right after this. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. I thought that what we would do today is uh, to try and explore some of the symbolisms, some of the ideas behind the blowing of the shofar. For those of you who were in shul this morning, you would have heard the shofar sounded. For those of you who haven't, um, you can still hear it during the day. Remember that the obligation, the absolute injunction to hear the sounding of the shofar applies to Rosh Hashanah. By tradition, we hear it every day in the month of Elul, starting from today, leading all the way up to Rosh Hashanah. We do not blow it on Erev Rosh Hashanah, on the day before Rosh Hashanah, so that there is a difference between the customary blowing, which is during this month of Elul, and the obligatory blowing, which is on Rosh Hashanah itself. Um, the blowing of the shofar beginning today is such an essential ingredient in all of Judaism that it warrants a large discussion, I guess, on all of the symbolisms, on all of the ideas um, that that really pertain to the blowing of the shofar, the sounding of the shofar, and the need to hear it. What does it actually do for us? And what is its symbolism? What is it really all about? Perhaps we need to go all the way back to the very beginning. So always a good place to start. And right in the beginning of uh, Genesis, in fact, when we're talking about in the book of Breshit, the whole story about the Akedat Yitzchak, that seems to be the very first time that we meet up with this instrument that we call the Shofar, which is the ram's horn, a horn of a ram that is hollowed out, the grizzle or um, uh, innards of the horn are actually removed, and it is a hollow shell, this hollow horn, which is always shaped in a particular fashion. It's got a slight curl to it, of course, that's the horns of the ram. It has 
a narrow end and it has a broad end, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And it is through that shofar that air is blown. And the shofar itself, being the shape that it is, actually then reverberates with the sound that is unique to a shofar. It is a shrill voice. It is a voice that is unmistakably that of a ram's horn, that of a shofar. It is not that pretty. It is not that musical. It's not that lyrical. But it's a bass sound, a kind of a scream. It's a little bit um, exciting, but at the same time, a little bit awesome, a little bit scary. The sound of the shofar is a sound that each and every one of us knows, identifies with. And uh, really, it kind of, and it should, it's meant to, do something within our innards, within our souls, to make um, kind of the hair stand up on the back of our necks and make us feel that not only is Rosh Hashanah coming, but there is something that we need to do. There is an urgency that it creates. And similar to the urgency, of course, that it created amongst the people, realizing that Moshe Rabbeinu was gone for 40 days. Now, for a second time, we had to be on our best behavior. We had to remember to prepare and get ready for the time of absolute forgiveness when he would return 40 days later on Yom Kippur. On the 10th day in the month of Tishrei, with the uh, tablets, with the Torah in its proper, lasting self, um, it is something magnificent and it's something awesome. But going back to Avraham Avinu, to Abraham and Isaac, well, very first reference, we talk about the Akedah, we talk about the moment when Isaac was taken by his father Abraham up the mountain, and up they went um, without any supposed um, animal that they were going to offer up. It was clear to both of them exactly what was happening. Remember that Isaac was a man of 37 years old. He wasn't a kid. He was being taken up the mountain by his father, questioning what are we going to offer up? And his father, in um, between the lines, actually makes it pretty clear that it is him who's going to be the offering, and yet he continues. They go up the mountain. Well, of course, our forefathers, Abraham and Isaac, had the most incredible Mesirat Nefesh. We call it Mesirat Nefesh, which means a total self-abnegation, an ability to actually say, it's not about me, it's about the cause. It's not about me, it's about God. If this is what God's want, God wants and he wants to take my life, well, here it is. I'll present it because um, there is nothing as important as God and what he wants fulfilled in this world. And if it's that's what I've got to do. I'm prepared to really not only go to the ends of the earth, but actually go to the end of my life in order to fulfill what God wants from me. Mesirat Nefesh, total, complete, absolute commitment that we saw on behalf of Moshe, of, of Avraham Avinu and of Yitzchak, his son of Abraham and of Isaac on that awesome and fateful day. Well, we all know that what actually happened there was that at the last moment, God had fulfilled what he required to do, which was to test to see whether they would hearken to his request, albeit that it was so illogical that it made no sense whatsoever. And an animal, a ram, was caught in the thicket. I think it's the only place in uh, Torah that we have this thicket that is mentioned. I'm not sure if anybody talks about any other bushes um, around town as being thicket, but there there was this thicket that the uh, ram was caught in by its horns. And of course, from then on, 
the ram's horn became this incredibly powerful symbol within Judaism. And what does it refer to? Well, there, if we go back and we think about it, it refers to the idea of an offering instead of. There's this idea of some kind of an exchange, an expiation, the fact that here we have a an offering that was meant to be made of Yitzchak Avinu, of Isaac, and instead of him, the animal was offered up. It was the deferring of the difficulties. It was making a... Um, uh, not only a scapegoat, um, because that is used in a very, very negative sense, but the idea of um, transferal and the ability that we can go on and we can continue to function, which became an essential ingredient of our whole teshuva and particularly our Yom Kippur process as well. And the animal was caught by its horn, and the horn then became this symbol, which we sound, um, in order to kind of remind God, you know, it's almost the idea that we're actually saying to the Almighty, do you remember the sound God? This is the sound of the shofar, and do you remember the first time the shofar occurred? Do you remember the first time it appears in your Torah? Of course you do, God. That was at the Akedah. That was up on the mountaintop where uh, the only two people present, Abraham and Isaac, were both prepared literally to give up everything that they understood and everything in their lives or their lives themselves in order to fulfill your will. Well, remember, God, we are their great, 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 so many times grandchildren, and we're still here. And we're still sounding the same shofar, and we still have the same kind of commitment. And if you think we're lost, we're not. We're right here with that same kind of a connection. And so we sound the shofar as a moment and as a as a time and as a a powerful message of the fact that, God, this is the same sound. This is still us. We're still around. We're still here to tell the tale. And we want you, you God, to remember that the same way as you had mercy and you will continue to have mercy on Abraham and Isaac, we want you to do so for us as well. And this is the link, of course, all the way back to way back when, between us, the sounds of the shofar, and the original shofar all those many years ago. Back with you right after this. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. So there was a story that is told, of course, about the sounding of the shofar, um, which goes something like this. There was once a king, and the king had uh, sent his son far away. The son had gone to a distant country, and the son had everything that he could possibly have wished for. Unfortunately, the son got himself into trouble, as heads of state's children sometimes seem to do when they're off in foreign lands. He got himself into trouble and um, started to lose all the wealth that his father had actually given him. It wasn't like today where uh, you could kind of just go back for more. You could do an EFT and you could send it across or somebody else could smuggle the money out of the country for you or whatever other means are sometimes used. Um, and um, cut off as he was and distant as he was, he had gone through everything. He had eventually become so caught up in the environment and the society that he was in that uh, the story goes he actually had to get rid of any staff that he had. He had to get rid of any of the carers that his father had sent with him, all the bodyguards and so on. And um, now all alone, he became a derelict. He became a beggar. And he spent many, many years slowly but surely, completely and absolutely forgetting everything 
that he had had as a child and everything that he had lived for then and um, completely hopeless. Um, so he degenerated. But um, many, many decades later was so completely absorbed into that environment and that society that his life just seemed to be absolutely pointless. And then one day he heard of a an ability to board a ship which was setting sail and to get some kind of a work on it. They were looking for anybody who was prepared to work hard, and so he did. And the ship set sail, and it eventually arrived, strangely enough, in his father's country. And as he arrived in his father's country, something ran true. Um, but he'd forgotten all the mores of the society, all the traditions, all the customs, even the language. He didn't know how to speak to the people on the uh, seashore when uh, the boat pulled into the harbor, into the bay. He didn't know how to speak to the police, to anybody who was there. But, of course, he felt something. He knew something, and he wanted to return. He wanted to get back. He wanted to be close um, to his father. Of course, there may have been ulterior motives, but nevertheless, he wanted to get back to the palace. And as the king was um, now really getting on in years. He, too, yearned for the return of his son. But unbeknown to him, his son had actually landed back in his own country. And the young boy, the prince, um, who had now grown a lot older, was being completely negated and disregarded by any of the um, uh, countrymen, any of the police, any of the palace officials. They kept on rebuffing him, turning him away, telling him to get out of the air away because here he looked like uh, a real derelict, a complete beggar, um, had no place um, coming there and behaving in the way that he was outside the palace gates. But then he remembered something. From his childhood, he recalled the fact that his father used to take a walk outside um, every single afternoon at a certain time. And he decided that there was only one way that he could do anything to attract his father's attention if his father's traditions were still true to form. And so he positioned himself close to the palace walls, and as he thought that it would be the time that his father would be walking around the property, um, as he was wont to do in times gone by, he let out this scream, a huge, loud yelp, a huge, loud scream, a shout, that came from the core of his very being. Um, the people outside were about to pounce on him, thinking that he was a total mishugana. Um, in that case, somebody who uh, really needed to be institutionalized. But the king inside the palace gates heard the sound. And he said, wow, familiar voice. I recognize that voice. That can only be the voice of my son. That sounds like my boy. Please, quickly, hurry, guards. Go see who it is that's screaming outside. I think it's my son. And, of course, they found that it was. They were reunited, and as all good stories end, they all lived happily ever after. But the happily ever after that we're talking about and that we're thinking about and that we're aiming for is, of course, the sound of the shofar. We have drifted. We may have lost our way. We may have lost our ability to speak God's language. Um, we not quite sure what it is exactly that we have to do sometimes in order to be able to get through to Shamaim, to get through to God. Um, and the sound of the shofar is that core, basic um, sound, a sound that comes from the heart and the soul of each individual. 
Um, and we're told, we know that it is the very, very sound that is not only shrill, but it is great and wondrous music to God's ears because God says, ah, oh, I recognize that sound. It is the sound of my people returning to me. It's the sound of my children coming home. It's the sound of the commitment of Abram and Isaac. It is the sound that was sounded at the time that the Torah was given. It's the sound that they sounded when Moshe went up the mountain. It is the sound that was sounded when we conquered Jericho. It was the sound that was sounded out of the depths of depravity and difficulty in the Holocaust when people were able to get their hands on a shofar and they would absolutely really put their their existence, their lives in peril in order to be able to sound the shofar when it came to Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. It's that sound that connects us, the sound, of course, that was sounded 50 years ago at the Kotel um, on its uh, recapture um, in the Six-Day War. It's the sound of the shofar that is literally music to God's ears because it's the sound of his children coming home. It's the sound of return. It's the sound that God is waiting to hear from us. The idea of the unanimity of his people, the unique call from the guts, from the heart, from the very depths of our souls to ensure that God will listen and will take us back. And therefore the sound of the shofar is this deep and beautiful and very, very significant sound that we sound from today all the way through to Rosh Hashanah and then on Rosh Hashanah itself, of course, the obligatory sounds of the shofar. So there is something very, very powerful about the shofar, and of course its shape is something else that gives us an inkling as to exactly what we're doing with the sound of the shofar. Ever notice that a shofar, the mouthpiece, the part that is actually connected to us is very narrow. The part that is pointing up towards the heavens is wide, is open. A shofar is shaped that way. That's the way that God created it. And we sound the shofar, and in fact, it's one of the verses that we say when we do sound the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, that is, min hametzar karatika. We call to God from narrowness. Anani bamerchavka. God answers me, he answers us from broadness. We are in a position of restriction. We are completely restrained and restricted, confined, straightjacketed, unable to really go where we want to go from a spiritual point of view, be where we want to be. God answers us in a broad, broad way. We call from restriction. God answers us from broadness, from prosperity, from the broad, open-handed dishing out of all the good things um, that we hope and pray for. At the same time, we have a unique tune that we play on the shofar. Now, it's not a tune as in making great and wonderful music, as we mentioned before. But these shrill sounds have a significance all of their own. Very often, or almost always, when the shofar is sounded, perhaps the only exception being at the end of Yom Kippur, when we only blow one blast of the shofar, there is a kind of a sandwich effect that we always sound the shofar with. What I mean is that there are two long sounds which are on either side of a type of a filling, a middle sound that is always surrounded by the two straight longer sounds. 
To be more specific, we sound a sound called a takia. A takia is one long sound, a long voice. It is straight. It is kind of unfaltering. We then have what I've called the filling, which comes in the middle, which is either made up of shvarim or shvarim trua or just trua. Those sounds are, first of all, three broken sounds, and then a number of staccato, little, short sounds. So you've almost got this effect that it goes, aha, 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 and then ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, if you know what I mean. Those sounds are actually the sounds that we blow in the midst of the two long sounds. Now, there are many, many beautiful ideas and interpretations. I'd like to just offer you one right now. And that is that um, perhaps the whole sounding of the shofar is actually a record of the history of the Jewish people and a view to our future. If we take those simple, straight, long sounds, well, perhaps we could suggest that that refers to times that have gone by where things were going wonderfully, plain sailing. When we had a temple, when we had an adherence to the Torah, where we knew where we were going and what we were doing, where we had everything kind of sorted and going beautifully. And the Jewish people were on the up and up, and there was prosperity, and there was all sorts of good things. Then, unfortunately, in the central part, we fell into a little bit of despair. Banished into exile, we had one difficulty after the other. One persecution after the other, one destruction of temple after the other, one war after the other, and one holocaust, unfortunately, after the other. And as those things happened, so the Jewish people cried out to God. And it started off, perhaps, as a little bit of a whimper. But then it became the cry that is almost the cry of a little child, of a baby, because lost as we sometimes feel as we sometimes are in the darkness of a big and overpowering, overbearing, seemingly overbearing world, we um, just whimper, lying there, crying out to the Almighty to have mercy on us, to grant us some kind of a redemption that we hope and pray for. And then there's the hope. The last sound of the shofar, the last tekiah, is a straight sound once again where we say to each other, we know that good times are coming, that we know that Mashiach will be here, that we know that there will be a geula, that there will be a redemption, that we may be battling at the moment and we may be crying at the moment and things may be difficult and tough at the moment and we may feel as though it has gone on for all too long and that it seems like it will never end, but good times are coming. We're going to get back to that time of the literal plain sailing, of the solid sound. And in fact, then we think about when we sound the shofar in this rhythm, as we said, of the long sound, the interim sounds of difficulty, and then the long sound once again, the tekiah, the filling, and the last sound, one tekiah again, that um, we're talking about how our people have been and how the history of the Jewish people has been over thousands of years, over all the centuries, that the plain sailing was long gone. We're in this difficulty, in this 
quagmire of um, uh, of absolute difficulty, desperation, and the reminder of the fact that good times are coming, that things are going to get better, that we're going to get back to times of peace, that there's going to be harmony, that all people are going to be geared up for uh, following God and for keeping his commandments, that all of those things are going to change. And the sounds of the shofar, therefore, is a record of our history, but of course a promotion of the hope that we are supposed to have instilled by the sounds of the shofar into each and every one of us, particularly as we turn right now to face a brand new year. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Probably should say many more in-store specials, but anyway, much more in-store specials at Pick and Pay Hypermarket. Um, let's move on and carry on with our ideas of this month of Elul. So during this month, we are thinking about not only positioning ourselves in a way whereby we remind ourselves of or try to remind God of just who we are. Um, at the same time, we think about the history of the Jewish people and try and ensure that we actually will have a much better year, that things will come out much better in the future, that things will now uh, turn around and change. But at the same time, the shofar is meant to stir something within us. It is meant to be something that really touches our soul. It is that shrill sound that gets deep inside the proverbial kishkas. It makes you feel um, a little uneasy, a little uncomfortable. And it's not just because it is now only just a few short weeks away from Rosh Hashanah. And um, we don't want to feel that we've left it a little bit too late and that we have to start cramming for the finals, so to speak. But um, it is really to try and invoke within us and bring about some changes. Um, it's that alarm clock that wakes us up, that says, you know, while you may have been um, doing all your stuff during this past year, and you may have been a little bit off the rails, and you may have been a little bit off the mark, and a little bit behind um, the um, uh, the pace from a spiritual point of view, now's a great opportunity to fix it all. And we believe that this month of Elul, as we mentioned last week, is a time that God gives us to be able to make that return, to turn our lives around, to change our ways, to um, sit in a completely different seat for um, uh, uh, the the month that is ahead of us, um, to get really behind the wheel and drive our lives in the right, in the correct in the in, in the in the in the the correct way, in the correct direction, to make sure that we are on track, that we're back where we should be, that we're doing the things that we should be, and this is really what that shofar is. It's the starter's gun. It is the wake-up call. It is the alarm clock. It is that system to say, you know, now we are really starting to run out of time. Now's the time to utilize this incredible month of turning things around. And so it is the time to get out of the rut. It is the time to change the um, apathy. It is a time to pick ourselves up, to dust ourselves off and say, you know what, we can, and we're going to move forward. We're going to make a change. We're not going to be depressed. We're not going to be downtrodden. We're not going to be put down by all the negative things that we see going on around us, whether it's here, whether it's abroad, whatever it is. 
those are things that really in the greatest scheme of God's world are um, not as significant as what we can do to make this a much, much better place, not only for everybody around us, but for ourselves. And so this month of Elul is this positive action time. And if we think about it, is perhaps this not a suggestion that it kicked off this year with the concept, with the idea of a solar eclipse. When we think about the concept of the sun, the sun, we're told, is not that smart. The sun is a light in the daytime. Not so uh, brilliant to be able to light up the day, but you've got to be brilliant to light up the night. And here, the moon eclipses the sun. The idea of the power of what a mitzvah actually is eclipses everything else. It can take out the ways of the world, the ways of everything around us, which lead to naught and to nothingness, and they can be eclipsed. They can be completely eclipsed and overrun and overruled. They can be blotted out um, with one movement of the moon, of the representative of the Jewish calendar, of Judaism, of Yiddishkeit, of Torah, of mitzvot. The power of a mitzvah is such that it can eclipse everything else. And if that is the power of a regular mitzvah, how much more powerful is the power really of the shofar and the power really of our tshuva, of our return, of our action um, in order to move in the right direction during this month of Elul. So let's take that symbolism and move it through this month. And I'll be back to conclude right after this. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elobo. So in conclusion, we would just like to inform you, just to let you know about some of the customs during this month of Elul that are practiced all over the world. First of all, we have mentioned the blowing of the shofar at great length. There is also the custom that um, during the month of Elul, we say the psalm that is called a psalm of David, psalm number 27, God is my light and my, my salvation. Hashem ori v'yishi, God is my light and my salvation. That we say this both in the morning as well as in the afternoon, or some say it in the evening service. And the psalm is added as a result of the, mid, uh, of the Midrash, which says, God is my light on Rosh Hashanah, my salvation on Yom Kippur. He'll hide me in his sukkah on Sukkot. And we um, say this psalm twice a day to remind us of the beautiful Chagim that are coming up and remember that that salvation, that plateau, that beautiful time is about to dawn upon us. It is also customary in many communities to add extra psalms. Now we know that the psalms are God's music, music to God's ears, psalms of the book of David. These beautiful uh, poems, these beautiful odes, these beautiful prayers are um, said and added to during the month of Elul. And there are many who actually add every day a whole system of three extra psalms. So this morning, the first three would have been said. Tomorrow we go from four, five, six, then four, five, five and six, and then thereafter, seven, eight, and nine, and all the way through right up until Yom Kippur, when we conclude with 36 psalms, which are said actually on Yom Kippur, and thereby completing the entire book from today right up until Yom Kippur. It is also traditional that when you write a letter to a friend um, at this time, we should add in 
a line of wishing them, a Shana Tova, of wishing them that they should be inscribed in the Book of Life for the coming year. So, but at least a greeting um, that we are giving them a blessing during this time. Um, I'm not sure how you're going to add that on all your emails, but it wouldn't be a bad idea if you did. Um, but certainly when we send a message to anybody, we should remember to wish them well for the coming year. It is also a time for checking on our mitzvot and their performance, and many people during this time have their mezuzot and their tefillin checked to check and to see to it that those things, that those items which really are our transistors, our connectors, our antennae that go up and that reach up and connect us with the Almighty, that those um, mezuzot and tefillin are checked or fixed and are made to be good and correct from any defects that they may have. But of course, that is all symbolic of how we're supposed to check into every single one of the actions or the non-actions of our performance or non-performance of mitzvot, good deeds, good things that we're supposed to be doing uh, during this time. And so let's hope that we will get things right during this month of Elul, that we will be able to reach a um, completely a different and better moment um, or moments in our lives and in the lives of the Jewish people that we will actually reach that plateau that we have been speaking about, that tekiah, where once again we'll be returned to the peace and tranquility, the wonderful things that we hope and pray for in our world. And please, God, we'll be able to accomplish all of that during this beautiful month of Elul. So I want to wish you a Chodesh Tov, a great Chodesh, a great month. I want to wish you a great Shabbat up ahead, a wonderful rest of the week, and I look forward to being back with you next week, same time, same place, on Judaism 101.9.